So, uh, and church, we've been always open here, so we want you to come. All right, this morning, who is God? That's our question. Sounds like a funny question, really, but for those of you who are believers and you love the Lord, you know who God is to you. But scripture gives us the only reliable source of who he is. There are some things that we found out about God. We just finished uh, three wonderful, well-known uh, attributes of God, the omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God, and the omnipresence of God. Those stand as the, uh, the real hallmark of the attributes of God. We also know he's good, and he's sovereign, and he's just, and he's holy. Today, we look at the fact that God is righteous. God is righteous. Dennis Prager, who is a conservative, nationally syndicated radio talk show host, likely not a believer, at least as far as I can tell, however, had an insightful column about goodness or righteousness. Here's what he said. No issue has greater influence on your social and political views than whether or not you view human nature as basically good or not. In 20 years as a radio talk show host, I've dialogued with thousands of people, virtually every religious, ethnic, and national background. Very early on, I found out an apparent major reason why people have political and other disagreements. Many people, in fact, most people, listen to this statement, most people believe that people are basically good. Most people believe that people are basically good. Here's the problem with that. If we believe that people are basically good, then God and religion are morally unnecessary. Not only morally unnecessary, but even harmful. Why would a good person need a God or a religion to provide a moral standard? My friend, Dennis Prager, perhaps not a believer, he really nailed it on that one. Folks, the Bible is clear. Human nature is not inherently good. In fact, quite the opposite. Man needs a God to make him good. Oh, well, wait a second. If man needs a God to make him good or righteous, then that would require that that God be good or righteous. Well, hallelujah. Scripture teaches that our God is not just good. He is righteous. The most common word in the Old Testament for righteous is the word which we would translate as to be straight. God has no waving in what he does. He is straight on. The New Testament word 
similar, but not quite the same. The most common New Testament word means equal. God then, from the definition of these words from the Old and New Testament, is always straight on, always right, and consistently so. Not ever even amiss, not once. He is always righteous. Now there's much talk today about righteousness. It's an interesting age we live in, I must admit. Back in the 70s, some of us remember those days, back in the 70s there was a slang term when something was really great. You would say, righteous. That was righteous. Righteous man. Much talk of righteousness over the years. Dr. Martin Luther King, quoting the Old Testament prophet Amos, said in his famous I have a dream speech, we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Sadly today, many are moving towards socialism. However, it appears that socialists have a questionable definition of what righteous means. They say they, they have a right to their anger because it is righteous anger. And yet their actions often seem not very righteous. The liberal left now calls themselves woke. The idea behind this new phrase is that they have awakened to the real problems with our country and our world today. And that's why they have a right to moral outrage, they say over traditional values, or as some have said, colonial values. What's the answer? The answer, friend, is not traditional values, or colonial values, or woke values, or social values. The answer is biblical values, that our God is a righteous God, and he can make sinful people good by his grace. Hallelujah. I'm glad to be able to speak this morning about the righteousness of God. A preacher and an atheistic barber once were walking through the city slums. The barber spoke to the preacher. He said, you know what? This is why I can't believe in a God of love. If God was as good and as righteous and as loving as you say he would be, he would not permit all this poverty, this disease, this squalor. He would not allow these people to be addicted to drugs and all the things that's going on. <laughs> I can't believe in a God who would allow that. The minister didn't say much for a few moments. They were walking along until they came upon a man who was especially unkept and frankly filthy. His hair was just all over the place. He had a half inch of stubble on his face and the minister said to the barber, you can't be a very good barber or you wouldn't permit a man like that to continue living in this neighborhood without a haircut and a shave. The barber said, wait, wait a second, indignantly, he said, why blame me for that man's condition? I can't help it that he's like that. He has never come to my shop. If he would come to my shop, I would make him look like a gentleman. Giving that barber a penetrating look, the minister said, then don't 
blame God for allowing people to continue in their evil ways when he is constantly inviting them to be saved by his grace. Amen. And so this morning, we have a good God, a righteous God. I am excited about sharing this truth. And there's going to be a lot of scripture, so I hope that you're ready to receive it. And at some point, it might even seem like a little bit of fire hose on you, but uh, just drink it in if you would. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for the glorious truth that you're a righteous God. I'm glad I don't have to have any questions in my mind if God is good or not. Because, Lord, that's such a comforting feeling today to know that whatever happens, you're a good God, a loving God, a righteous God. I pray that our brothers and sisters, each one, whether new in the Lord, whether they're just starting over, or whether they've been here for a time, that, Lord, each one of us would just rejoice in this great truth. Amen. What do you mean when you say that something is righteous? When a human says that that person is righteous about that human, they are saying that they have conformity to an outward standard. Now, depending on your social outlook or depending on your political bent, then that person is righteous depending on adherence to those set of values that they have adopted. As you begin today teaching about God's righteousness, we need to know that God is unlike humanity in that fact. God is not subject to anything outside of himself. He is not abiding by any standard. That, abide, that gives us a key truth then, that God's rightness, and this is a good thing to write down, God's righteousness comes from within his righteous, uncreated being. In fact, God is not defined by the term righteous. Actually, we would say it this way. Righteous is defined by God. That is that no outward measure can measure God. If we verify that God has done something, then it's righteous because God can't do anything but that which is righteous. Sometimes we have the idea that God is a conformity to some sort of an outward standard, not the way at all. Now I'd like to preface our study this morning by a case study from Abraham's amazing life. Let's open our Bibles now to Ephesians, excuse me, Genesis chapter 18. And here we're going to find God's righteousness being introduced early in the very opening chapters of the wonderful book of Genesis. God's righteousness is the basis for Abraham's famous appeal in sparing the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Chapter 18 and verse number 20 says this, And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is grievous. Now, God just says it like it is. Their sin is just wicked. And all sin is wicked, not just any particular type. Verse 21, I will go down now. We'll talk about that statement in just a moment and see whether they have done altogether 
according to the cry of it which is come unto me. Well, who, who cried out to God about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, in 2 Peter chapter 2, we know that Lot was vexed. The Bible says his righteous soul was vexed. That pretty much describes, I think, a lot of our spirit right now. A righteous soul being vexed by what we see in our country today. Lot apparently had cried out to the Lord. God heard that cry. And so it says that he will go down to see if it's true. Now, let's talk about that concept for a moment. An un, uh, how does an omniscient God, why does an omniscient God need to go down to earth to see what's going on? Well, he doesn't. That is one of those uh, humanisms that God puts in Scripture, like he has a face, like he has hands and so forth. He describes himself, God's a spirit, so he really doesn't function that way, but in order for us to get a grasp on what's happening and to prove that he is not unrighteous, no way, because it would be unrighteous of God to simply go by hearsay. This is what Lot said, so I'm going to destroy the whole city. No, wait a second. I'm going to go see for myself and to see if, in fact, there is a crisis there. But God goes down and he views the scenario and then he allows, strange enough, just always, that whole story just fascinates me, how that God just kind of lets Abraham keep pestering him for, you know, to this much and this much, but that's what he does. Now, what is the basis of Abraham's appeal to God? It is that God is undeniably righteous. There is no way in Abraham's mind that God could be righteous and still kill some righteous people or take their lives by judging the city. And so here's what he says. Let's go down to verse 25. Far be it, or excuse me, far from thee to do after this matter, to slay the righteous with the wicked. That would not be a very righteous thing to do. And that the righteous then would be just like wicked people. That would be far from thee. And now notice, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Remarkably, God listened and he gave in and he, uh, he did exactly what Abraham had prayed for, that he did spare people who were righteous. Now, righteous doesn't especially mean they were doing everything right. It just means that they had been saved by believing in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Even though they looked ahead to the cross, we look back to the cross, same thing. They looked that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. And so God let Lot and his, Abraham's nephew and the family be escaped. And then God sent in his angelic seal team to eliminate the hostiles. And that's what exactly happened. But a righteous God balanced justice and mercy so equitably. Only a righteous God could do that. Now, there are seven ways that I found in Scripture, at least, and there's, I'm sure, more. But there's at least seven ways that God reveals His righteousness. Let's go through those. If you're marking those down, and by the way, you can actually just get the app. It's right there on the app. and You can 
type it in and save it for yourself. Number one, God reveals his righteousness by unveiling his will. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. In the Old Testament book, Israel's senior pastor, he was real senior, he was over 100. He presents the case for the fact that there's only one path for Israel to have a prosperous future. And that would be to follow the rules of a righteous God. Look at verse 8 of Deuteronomy chapter 4. And what nation is there so great? First of all, none. Amen. That hath statutes and judgments so righteous. Folks, God's word is absolutely amazing. Don't fall for this concept that the Old Testament law was somehow flawed. Folks, it is perfect. That has statutes and judgments so what? Righteous, absolutely righteous, as this law which I set before you this day. Moses reminded the people, hey, you need to take this, you need to realize something about the privilege you have as Hebrews And that is that never has there been a people so privileged, never has there been a people that have been so blessed in history as the nation of Israel. While the Bible is for all people, the Hebrew nation had it personally handed to them. They heard from God by the hand of God through the Moses unbelievable scripture, a brilliant set of principles, morals, ethics, beliefs, ideals, standards, eternal laws, all infinitely righteous. No nation on earth had anything even close. Get that in your mind for a moment. In all the world, there were other nations. I mean, the Eastern Asian culture, they often describe their culture as being the oldest. And by... uh, inference that it is the best culture that's ever been. And it is true that some of their uh, dates go back uh, 2,000 years before Christ, B.C., not B.C.E., B.C., before Christ. You would think then that with all of this time, the fact that they were founded perhaps on these wonderful, wise, stately principles, but unfortunately that's not the fact. Now, I would not want to condemn any nation, but I will say this, I will relate the facts, that all the while, while that Eastern nation was doing what they were doing, God's people had all these wonderful laws. A study of the Eastern dynasties will find that they worshiped the life force, a female life force by the name of Tao. That's why there are Taoists today. And they must sacrifice to this female deity, that they had, which of course didn't really go well for some people. This, according to this doctrine, there were little ghosts running around everywhere, and it was very important to make them happy. Very superstitious group, and even that superstition even goes through till today. Pauline and I had the privilege of on a mission trip a couple years ago, and we went to China, and we noticed that when uh, some of the uh, Flight attendants were uh, walking into their uh, little area to ready to board the plane, that they all did a very funny little gesture. And I asked somebody what that was, and they would stop and 
forget exactly what they did, but they said, uh, I talked to our missionary there, and he said, oh, they're very superstitious, Chinese super superstitious. They will, I mean, they, they don't, they'll walk backwards, they'll go around, th- I mean, they are so superstitious. And yet for all these thousands of years, with all this rich culture, that's what it's come to, that little ghost running around, and we have to do this, and we have to do that, folks. That's why David said in Psalm 119, after being exposed to every teaching on earth, he said and declared in verse 128, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to thee right, and I hate every false way. Hallelujah, I am so glad that God doesn't require pineapples and bananas to make him happy. God is righteous. He is wonderfully righteous. God deals with mankind on the basis of what he has revealed to them. God will never shortchange us. He will never come around the backside on us and say, oh, you didn't get that one. No, hallelujah. God always gives us everything up front. He's righteous. He always does the right thing. And so God reveals his righteousness, first of all, that he's not a mysterious God. He has clearly unveiled his will. He wants us to know it. He's happy for us to know it. He has revealed it to us. Number two, he has revealed his righteousness by fulfilling every promise made. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the great scribe Ezra and a host of other godly leaders made an incredible speech, probably the greatest public prayer of confession ever. And it outlined clearly how that God had been so righteous to their nation. Look there in Nehemiah 9 and verse 7. Thou art the Lord God who didst choose Abram, or Abraham as we know him so often, He brought him forth out of the Ur of the Chaldees, which there is in Iraq or Iran today, there by Babylon, and gave him the name Abraham, a covenant name, verse eight, and found his heart faithful. And because he found his heart faithful, he made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites. Oh, you mean that little slice called Israel has been given to them? Yes, given by God the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Gergesites. Those are all groups that were there. They weren't uh, their land, it was God's. To give it, I say, to his seed. And now notice what it says. God has performed thy words, for thou art righteous. God's covenant blessing for Abraham's faithfulness was a sure thing. He saw Abraham's heart as obedient, and so God fulfilled what he said. A righteous God pouring out his blessing just as he said. That shows the righteousness of God. He has been good to Israel. He has been good to us because God is a God who fulfills every promise. In Genesis 22, that in blessing I will bless thee. That in blessing I will bless thee, meaning Blessings on top of blessings, (laughs) hallelujah. And in multiplying, I will multiply thy seed. Thy seed is the stars of the heavens and the sand which is upon the seas. Blessings upon blessings 
from the hand of a merciful, righteous God. God fulfills every promise. There's an old story. You may have heard it. It might be a fable, although there are names in it. There was once a blind girl, Ramona, who hated herself because she could not see. She had no eyes. The only person in all the world who really she felt like loved her was her boyfriend, Daniel, and he surely did love her. He was always there for her. He told her he wanted to marry her, didn't care at all that she was blind. She told him that when she could see, if ever, she would marry him. At Christmas time of that year, someone gave Ramona a pair of eyes. Oh, thrilled beyond words. Now she could see everything. And so Daniel reminded her of the promise. You said that if you can see, you will marry me. And so she looked up at him and was shocked. And for the first time, she realized that Daniel was blind. He had no eyes. She shrieked. I can't marry you. You're blind. You don't have any eyes. I don't want to be married to someone like that. Daniel walked away heartbroken. Dreams shattered. He thought she loved him. She was all he ever wanted, and he was all he she was all he wanted. Later that night, he wrote her a short note. The note simply said this: "Please, Ramona, take good care." of my eyes. I gave them for you. I love you. My friend, Jesus gave up his holy life as promised. He gave it all for us. He is a righteous God. He always fulfills his promises and he loves us. And that's why we know God is righteous because he unveils his will and he fulfills his promises. But also, number three, because he judges fairly. He judges fairly. Faithful Moses, an egotistical leader of Egypt, King Ramses II, were engaged in a war on religious freedom. Guess who won? In Exodus chapter 9, let's go there, Exodus 9 verse 27, And Pharaoh, King Ramses, sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said unto them, of all things, I have sinned. Oh, really, you're going to admit that? The Lord is what? Righteous. Say that with me. The Lord is righteous. Say it with me now. The Lord is righteous. And I and my people are wicked. Finally, Pharaoh admitted, however brief, that the God of Moses was a righteous God. Unlike his false deities, the sun god of all things, named Re, not R-A-Y, but R-E, and Neferatari, the god of music, and of course himself, the pharaohs were gods. He was the world's first superheroes. They worshiped all their deities, but he said, hey, guess what? We're wrong. Can you imagine what it would take for a king, a political leader, ruler of the world, really, the then known world, the modern world at that time, for him to stand up and say to Moses, this Bible preacher, the Lord is righteous. I and my people are wicked. Just imagine. That would be like today if one of the left-wing anti-Christian politicians in America today would call a news conference and say, I just am here to announce 
that the God of Christianity is 100% right. We are evil. Can you imagine something like that? I'm telling you what, the talking heads on CNN would implode. They would say, what in the world? But Pharaoh was 100% right and correct about God. He is righteous. No preacher could have said a greater statement about God. He is righteous. David in Psalm 96 issued out an equal clarion call. He said, everybody should praise the Lord. We, I think, would agree with that. But here's the reasoning behind that. One of the reasons is found in verse 13. Psalm 96 and verse 13. Now, there's a lot of reasons why we ought to praise the Lord. But this reason, the Lord is coming. Verse 13, before the Lord, he cometh. He cometh to judge the earth. And when he comes, he will judge the world with righteousness and the people with truth. The historical record is unassailable. That's exactly what happened. Jesus did come exactly like Mo, that David uh, spoke and as he foretold. Jesus came at Bethlehem and when he came, he did live a perfect life and he judged people not because he was condemning them, but because his righteous life judged the sinful nations of that earth. And no reasonable person could doubt the righteousness of Jesus. In fact, he spoke in such a way that when the people heard him, they said, never a man has spoken like this man. He speaks with authority, meaning he spoke righteousness. He always spoke the right thing. Look what it says in John 5 and verse 22. Christ declared, he said, God the Father has committed to me, God the Son, all judgment. I'm glad that someday when Jesus comes again in his second coming, now he's always come, already come one time. That's at Bethlehem. That's his first coming. But when he comes again, we're going to be able to know that there's going to be a righteous judgment. There's a lot of talk today about certain ideologies of these judges and these judges. These are liberal judges. These are conservative judges. And I'm sure that's probably the case. But I can assure you of this. That there is one judge who is neither liberal nor conservative. He is righteous. And he is coming soon. And that's what the Bible says about that God. He judges fairly. Now number four. God reveals his righteousness by ruling justly. Not only does he unveil his will. And not only does he fulfill his promises. And not only does he judge fairly. But he rules justly. In that beautiful. Amazing messianic song psalm 45 with the most amazing language you can imagine god's sovereignty is clearly outlined the throne that david speaks of has got to be a lot bigger than his throne or solomon's throne or any of israel's throne he's speaking about king jesus look at verse six thy throne O god yes very clearly we're talking about the throne of Jesus Christ is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Why is that verse important? That verse is important because it was quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. The author there, the Holy Spirit, maybe through Paul, said that God's scepter, God's throne is a righteous throne. 
And despite of all the opposition of the devil and evil, the gates of hell itself, God's plan is the only righteous plan and it's the only victorious plan. Now many people have a blueprint today for the future of our good country. Some better than others, others downright evil. Today many are complaining about the future of democracy and the future of justice. Well, you hear me when I say this, King Jesus has the only righteous plan. And that plan is the 1611 plan. You say the 1611 plan, what's that? Folks, the King James Version of the Bible was translated in 1611, and that's the answer for America today. Someone says, you have, what about this plan? I'm telling you what, the 1611 plan, the Bible plan is the right plan. Praise the Lord. That's exactly why Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 9, the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Hallelujah. I'm glad that the government is going to be on the shoulders of Jesus. Because if it's on anybody else or any other ideology, it's not going to work. The Bible is very blunt about this matter of sin. Humanity cannot fix sin. Have you ever noticed the spelling of sin? Someone said it's sin because it sounds like it comes right from a snake, yeah. But sin, right smack dab in the middle, there is the letter I. And that is where the problem lay. It is I. The reason that there's a sin problem is because there's an I problem. I'm right in the middle of the problem. You know, some of us, seems like especially men, will know that they have a medical problem. They sense it. They might even know there's a, a real uh, specific issue. But will they go to a doctor and humble themselves? No, most men especially, it seems like, not going to go admit that they're somehow need help or uh, you know, give in to the advice of some doctor. But folks, that's, if that's the case, probably never get rid of that sickness. But the thing is with Jesus, we, so many of us, we just don't want to admit that we're sinful or sick. I is right in the middle, and if we would get that settled, we could have the righteous, wonderful, loving Savior be our ruler. And that's what God is saying here, that by he reveals his righteousness by unveiling his will, fulfilling his promises, judging fairly. And thank God, if we will submit to his ruling, he'll take care of the eye problem. And number five, he reveals his righteousness by hating sin. He hates sin. Psalm chapter 7. Turn with me there, please. Psalm 7, verse 11. David was suffering. He'd been attacked, accused, persecuted, hated. Why? For all of his misdeeds? No, it certainly wasn't perfect. But because he had stood up for Jehovah God, and he was appealing to a righteous God to defend him. Look at verse 11. God judges the righteous. Or actually, it could be translated, God is a righteous judge. God is a righteous God. And he is angry with the wicked every day. David's confidence was this, that God is righteous. He can only do right. And he will eventually do the right thing. Despite... What's going on in the world right now? If for some reason, if sin is allowed to continue, it's only temporary. And a tragic end will await those who do not repent. 
Our Lord Jesus reiterated that in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3 and verse 36, he said, If you believe on the Son, you have everlasting life. But he that believeth not the Son shall not see God, but the wrath of God abides on him. We've made our choice, and God will judge sin. Now, all of us occasionally do what is right. A few predominantly do what is right. But do any of us always do what is right? Well, according to Scripture, not one of us do. Now, some might beg to differ here this morning and say, Well, Tim, I'm, I'm better than most folks, really. I've led a good life. I don't break the rules much. I help people. Compared to others, I think I'm a pretty righteous person. Well, maybe you would consider this analogy from my uh, years of being a, a parent. And I remember my uh, beloved wife in the early days would try to help the children learn how to clean. She was a pretty tidy person. And uh, she would, the girls would be there, and she'd ask them maybe to clean the kitchen. And uh, they would clean the kitchen. And so uh, she'd come back in and say, it's not clean. They said, well, it's clean. No, it's not clean. And then she would get a broom, and she'd start sweeping. And then she'd get a cloth. She'd start wiping. Why, before she was done, I mean, she'd have a pile of dirt like that. And she'd say, it's not clean. Clean is the way I do it. The way you did it was not clean. And that seems like what we're like. Jesus points to us and says, look, this is what I mean by righteousness. Now, if we're establishing righteousness based on what this group says or this group or this group or our own concept, yeah, we might be righteous. But Jesus looked at himself and said, this is righteousness. This is what I'm talking about. And so he reveals his righteousness by revealing his will. Fulfilling his promises, judging fairly, ruling justly, hating sin. I'm glad that he can hate sin righteously. Number six, by protecting the righteous. How does God reveal that he's a righteous God? Hallelujah, that he protects the afflicted. In Psalm 140, David was running for his life. Crazy, jealous Saul was on the warpath. And David had to do something about it. He was... He was Busting out running. He was in the cave of Adullam. Verse 12. I know God's going to be there for me. Because he always maintains the cause of the afflicted and the right of the poor. God is righteous to take care of people who are afflicted. Praise the Lord he does. Now many people today are working for the rights of the disenfranchised for social justice. Every month, some new group states, usually quite loud, that their lives matter. And actually, they're right. Lives do matter. The Bible is very clear, unequivocal, in fact. All lives matter to God. And that's exactly what the Bible is saying here. Because he's righteous, he cares about all lives, the right of the poor. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted. And hallelujah, he takes care of every group. We can be sure about that. We have a God who's got our back. And then he not only protects the afflicted, he hates sin, rules justly, judges fairly, fulfills promises, reveals his will. And then finally this morning, he reveals his righteousness by saving sinners. And nothing could be a greater proof of his righteousness 
that he has both the heart and the ability, being righteous, to save an unrighteous person like you and I. A thousand years ago, the psalmist in Psalm 98 looked forward to a gospel day, looked ahead. And in verse number two, he said, that's the only hope. That's true hope. Look at verse two. The Lord hath made known his salvation. How are we going to save a nation? By saving people's souls. And his righteousness has he openly shown in the sight of the heathen. Folks, our righteous redeemer overcame every difficulty, irregardless of the cost. Anything that was in the way of salvation, he took it out of the way. Time and time again, Satan tried to destroy the human race. In Adam's day, he almost got it done. God said to Adam and Eve, and Dave, you eat of this, you'll surely die. Satan almost got us. In Noah's day, this world got down to eight souls. It was only eight people that were able to be saved on Noah's ark. Folks, that's getting down to the nitty gritty right there. In Moses' day, Satan tried to kill the messianic seed, kill all the firstborn. And because of some wonderful godly midwives who were willing to go against the government and do the right thing, they were able to save the messianic seed. Again, that happened in Herod's day. Folks, the point is, Satan has always tried to kill the human race by destroying salvation. If I can destroy the, the messianic seed, if I can destroy the one who will save mankind, then I've got it done. But righteous Jesus got the victory every time. Our Savior stands unbeaten, not 50 and 0, not 100 and 0. Folks, 10 zillion to 0. He has never lost a war or a battle. That's why the great apostle in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 said, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Folks, righteous Jesus, God the Son, beat the devil, and you know what that verse says? He taunted him. He beat the devil, and then he taunted him. Almost like down in a UFC uh, octagon, and after he's down, he just kind of stood over him and said, there you go. You gave it your best, but it wasn't anything. The devil deceives many today into thinking that they can be saved on their own. But it doesn't work that way. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 28. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous unto men. But within, you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Here Jesus said, righteousness is not something that can be attained from the outside. Now listen, folks. Nothing from the outside is going to make me righteous. Now, nothing wrong with trying to be righteous on the outside. But that's not going to achieve my righteousness with God. And the Bible's clear. Heaven is for righteous people. In these days, today, virtue signaling has taken on a whole new meaning. Now, back in Jesus' day, they had to wear special clothing. They had to have special devices put on their head or on their face. They had to be educated by the best of rabbis. But over the last 2,000 years, names have changed, devices have changed, but it's still the same. Folks, moral grandstanding is still alive. 
People are saying, I'm righteous because I do this, or I'm righteous because I don't do this. Others claim some kind of a higher ground because I don't do this or I do this. Folks, I'm telling you this morning, I'm not righteous because I drive an electric car or I don't eat meat or I celebrate indigenous people day or whatever they do. I mean, we have all kinds of virtue signaling today. People that are taking this high moral ground because of this or that. Folks, the list is endless. But Jesus is clear. He said, you may appear to people, others to be righteous, but I promise you, you are not righteous with God unless something takes place on the inside. What is that? Romans chapter 3 tells us. Paul points out that a man can only be righteous when God makes him righteous. Look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds, so no deeds are going to make me righteous, whatever that be, whether it be religious, getting on a little carpet, praying five times a day, facing the east, holding on to some beads, getting baptized in a baptistry, whatever the case, God said, no deeds, no deeds that I do make me righteous, nothing I wear, nothing I say, no place I live, no school I go to, no higher ground can be claimed by anybody on a moral basis from the outside. Now they do. I mean, you see it every day in the news. They claim to have higher ground because of this or they, because of this affiliation or whatever. But God says, no deeds can make me holy. No deeds shall flesh be justified. Well, let's skip down to verse 22. The righteousness of God comes, how? By faith in Jesus Christ. Righteousness comes not by any deed. Whether it be religious, whether it be uh, political, whether it be social, whether it be cultural, whether it be some saving the whales, or you name it, folks, nothing from the outside will make me righteous. These are deeds. Righteousness is by faith in Jesus Christ upon all that believe. There's no difference. Everybody gets to heaven the same way. That is by faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. What in the world? Jesus makes people moral by believing? How is that possible? The reason that's possible is because God never changes the moral law. He makes us moral. Now today, people are always changing the rules. Well, I'm righteous if you do this. You're good if you do this. You're moral if you do this. And the goalposts are constantly changing. What's good, what's bad, and I just actually quite enjoy this era because back 40, 50 years ago, you know, it was all the church folks who supposedly had high moral ground, and now it's the uh, socialists and the liberal. They're supposedly the, the real moral ones. Well, guess what? It doesn't make any difference either way. What makes me righteous is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. He is the standard, and he saved us by, by completing what the scripture says. On the cross of Calvary, he forgave our sin. He paid the full price. He suffered the full measure of God's wrath in my place. That's why salvation is called the gospel. We are a gospel-preaching church. What does the word gospel mean? It comes from the word which means good news. Folks, it wouldn't be gospel if I had to say you have to be moral. 
You have to do this, this, and this to go to heaven. That wouldn't be the gospel. It wouldn't be the good news. That'd be the bad news. Oh, I can't do that. I can't get baptized because I don't like water. I can't get baptized because I can't get up there. I can't get down to the church. Folks, grace is offered to every person. And God can make us righteous, truly righteous. Not by burning a candle. Not by wearing some cloth on our head or around our body. Not by going to some cathedral. Not by any of these things. God's written record is clear. Jesus never rejected even one sinner that came to him for mercy and salvation. But he did reject those who were too righteous in their own eyes to accept Jesus Christ. Folks, nobody is too lost to be saved. But there are those this morning who think that they're too good to need saving. Some folks today, imagine, and I've talked with many people over the years, so I'm basically a good person. And I would say, well, I'm sure you are basically a good person. But let me just ask for a question. Just imagine. Maybe you might do uh, one little sin in the morning, possibly. Maybe a little lie in the morning about what you got to do or what you're doing, maybe at work. Maybe one little slight instance of hatred because Jesus even looks on the heart. And then maybe on your way home from work, you might do a little covetousness, you know. So let's say uh, three sins a day. Maybe more than that. Some of us, yes. <laughs> maybe some less. But let's just take three sins a day. And let's take a person that's 70 years old. And let's discount maybe the first five years because, you know, I mean, they're still kind of trying to figure out what morality is. And so there's something called the age of accountability. So three sins a day, 70 years, discount five. That's still over 70,000 sins. That's three small sins a day. Folks, I'm telling you, it doesn't sound like a very good person to me. That's why Jesus said, look, righteousness can't be achieved by anything outward because we couldn't do it even if we tried. The saving truth of the gospel is the most comforting truth of all, that a righteous God has made us righteous by satisfying the righteous demands of God the Father. He made us righteous when we admit that we're sinners. I can't go to heaven on my own. I'm not righteous. And folks, none of us can claim any kind of moral high ground at all only Jesus can do that. I'm going to close this morning with a story. It is a powerful, true story. A pastor who Sunday night service, after the hymns, walked up to the pulpit and said he wanted to have a guest minister, an older guest minister, give a word before he spoke that night. He said he was one of his dearest and most treasured childhood friends. At that, the elderly man stepped up to the pulpit and began to speak. He didn't say a lot of introduction, just started out. A father, he said, his son and a friend were sailing off of the Pacific coast when a fast approaching storm blocked any attempt to get back into the shore. The waves were so high that even though the father was an experienced sailor, he could not keep the boat upright and they were swept into the ocean and the boat capsized. The man hesitated for a moment, making eye contact at that moment. On the front row, there was a couple of teenagers. 
who really hadn't paid much attention for most of the service, but when this older pastor was speaking, they were beginning to pay attention. The older pastor looked at those boys and said, grabbing a rescue line, the father had to make the most excruciating decision of his life. Which boy would he save? There was only one lifesaver. He knew he couldn't save them both. His son, he knew, was a Christian, but his son friend was not. The agony of the decision could not be matched by the torrent of the waves. The father yelled out, I love you, son. And he threw out the lifeline to his son's friend. The father pulled his son's friend back to the capsized boat as his son disappeared beneath the raging swells to the black of the night. His body never recovered. By this time, of course, those two teenagers on the front row were listening absolutely intently for every word. The father, he continued, knew his son would step into eternity. But he could not bear the thoughts of this son's friend going to eternity without Jesus. And so he sacrificed his son to save his friend. With that, the old man turned and sat back down to his chair, and a silence filled the room. The pastor walked to the pulpit, delivered his brief sermon. Without, within minutes after the service ended, the two teenagers ran to that older pastor's side. That's a nice story, they politely said. But really, I don't think it was a very realistic to imagine that a father would give up his son in life hopes that the other boy would become a Christian. He'd say, well, you got a point there. The old man glanced down at his Bible. A big smile then broadened on his face, and he looked up. He said, it sure wasn't realistic, I'm sure. But I'm standing here today telling you it just gives a glimpse of what God gave when he gave up his son for me. And you see, I was that father. And your pastor was my son's friend. Friend, yes, God has given up his righteous life. He gave up his son. For us. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.